Well, good morning, Life Point. It's a joy to be with you today, and I'm looking forward to our time together uh, as we consider the Word of God for us today. About three months ago, I preached a message entitled Personal Pandemic, What to Do When Life Disappoints. I used the passage from Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 and my main point of that message was how it is that a Christian must think in a pandemic. Well, today's message is going to be a complimentary message to that one to help us think biblically and theologically not in a pandemic but about a pandemic. You know, maybe it uh, more than at any other time, how it is that you think about your life in this season is as important for your well-being as how you think in this pandemic. Let me talk a little bit about what I mean by that. Scripture is filled with attacks for God's people to believe false narratives. Why? Well, because this is Satan's principal strategy of attack. Let me give you some brief examples. First of all, we look at the life of Job, which may be one of the greatest illustrations of this. And throughout the book, Job has three friends who continue to come back to him and beckon upon him to end his pain and misery and suffering or to some way alleviate it or try to skirt the edge of it. And each time they offer him a false narrative to a man that is in the midst of the suffering to try and make sense of it in some way. David, throughout the Psalms, is always attacked by false narratives so that in Psalm 46, he says that all I hear all day long from his accusers is where is your God? And of course, when Jesus hung upon the cross, the soldiers mocked him with a false narrative saying, if you are the king of the Jews... Why don't you come down and save yourself trying to make him do something that was in fact not God's will? And of course, unless we forget the most infamous, the very first attack of Satan himself, when the serpent met Eve in the garden, this was the way that he tempted her. Did God really say And then to later offer, you will not surely die. Your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. And look what it says that Eve did. It says, so when the woman saw, that's when she believed. It says that Eve saw it because she believed it. What did she believe? She believed what the serpent had sold to her. A false narrative. And because she believed, that's when she saw it. Friends, I assure you, false narratives fill the airwaves and subsequently fill our brain brain waves of our life every day. They litter our news feeds. They seep in to darken our thinking. They overwhelm our emotions. They sear our consciences. They numb our affections. And they sever our relationship. And on and on and on we could go with the way that false narratives impact our life. 
Lifeway, Re- uh, Lifeway Research recently published the findings of a study that, that contribute to this. They were thinking about how it is that social media influences Christians today. And their findings just among evangelical Christians told them this, that of daily use, 66% of evangelical Christians are active on Facebook. Now, this could not just mean once daily, but multiple times daily. But at least daily, 66%. Of that same group of people, 39% were active daily, even multiple times a day, on YouTube. Yet of that same group of people, only 32% even dared to crack the spine of their Bible daily. That's less than half of those who are active multiple times daily in social media. Let me pose a question to you that kind of helps us set the context today. Have you heard the echoes of false narratives recently? Where is God in the midst of this pandemic? If God is love, why is it that he allows suffering? Why does he inflict pain on people or even allow people to die? Maybe you've heard the direct attacks. Your God is not real. Your God is not loving. Your God is not true. You see, the narrative, friends, that you entertain, the narratives that you repeat in your mind, yea, the things you keep telling yourself will become the foundation upon which you build your life and you frame your thinking for all things in this world. I want you to understand, Christian, today that faith is sight. We learn that from Eve. Faith is sight. Where you place your faith determines what you see when the lies of false narratives waft by you, tickling your ears and tantalizing your temptations. Just a few weeks into this pandemic, I received an email request from a member of our church that just said, Pastor, would you be willing to offer some biblical context on the situation in which we find ourselves And at first I decided I wouldn't necessarily share that in a broader way. But his response asked me to. And so my answer to that email is basically the skeleton for what I want to share with you today. But I do have a disclaimer. And here's how I'll offer it. As I have often found myself in pastoral ministry, so I will begin by telling you this today. I truly wish I had a better answer for you. But I don't. I can't fully answer your question. Not because I don't know, but rather because there is no definitive answer for us. What I can provide and will provide for you today is simply a biblical perspective for how to make sense of the madness according to God's word and what it is that we should think in order to continue walking with Jesus faithfully day by day in the midst of it. Here's what I will gladly promise you. That the one to whom we look today will prove sufficient for us. And here's what I want you to understand. That grand idea to grab hold of. Jesus calls us to live by faith so we can rest And walk in him as our covenant 
keeper. Jesus is inviting you today, friends. He's calling you to walk by faith so that you can rest all of your life in him and walk by faith with him as your covenant keeper. Now, as I begin this message today, let me just tell you, it's going to be a little bit longer than what we've grown accustomed to in our normal COVID message time. Why? There's just too much here, even in a simple overview of the material. But I'm going to do my best to move quickly through it and to help you bring some clarity to it. Today, my aim is to deepen our trust in the one whom we know God to be, even and especially when we do not know how to make sense of the madness in which we find ourselves in. And I want to ask you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament. Turn to chapter 29 and verse 29. This is a verse that years ago, in just the simple reading through the the book of Deuteronomy itself, it struck me and it's never let me go since that time. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 records this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You see, Moses penned these words right in the midst of helping the people of Israel understand how it was that they were to live out the commands of God's law. And he's trying to help them understand the blessing of obedience and also the curse of disobedience and how it is that trusting God by faith makes all of the difference. But as an interlude, yea, even as a prelude to the glory of God, he offers up this simple verse with such a potent message for us. Now today I want to approach this message from two simple questions. The first question I'm going to address is simply this. How is it that we can and ought to think about our situation from a biblical and theological perspective? And so we're going to survey three different ways or three different categories for how it is that we can think about the pandemic and our situation in which we find ourselves in. And then the second question will move us to this. What is it that we should think and what is it that we should do in light of how we are thinking about this time? Let's go to question one. How can we think about this pandemic biblically and theologically? You see, in any circumstance beyond our control, we must learn to think according to the whole counsel of God's word. And what Deuteronomy 29, 29 directs us to are simply this. The secret things of God are called that for a reason. Secret things. We don't know, but we do know who does know. And that's what we're looking at today. The Bible speaks in many ways to the unexpected, life-altering situations with which we are hit in this world. You see, in some of those situations, the Bible also goes on to provide some insight to the reader. For instance, as I mentioned, the book of Job helps us to understand what's going on in Job's life because the writer of the book gives us the insight What God is doing. But remember this, though in the book of Joel, we are told 
Job is never told. He is in our situation. So we could say in many ways, we are in a very similar situation to Job. We do not know. What we can do is to glean lessons, to gain principles through which we can bring a faithful application for our situation. I want to approach the answer through a question. And that question is this. Is COVID-19 pandemic caused by God, a divine sovereign act that He has caused? Is COVID-19 pandemic sent by God through the normal and natural occurrences of people or events in history? Or is COVID-19 pandemic allowed by God just to transpire in the natural flow of history? If you're a covenant member at LifePoint, you may remember that one of the first things we talk about is our theological perspective. In, in other words, how it is that we understand God. And we have three perspectives that God is truth, God is mystery, God is story. And when we talk about God is mystery, we simply say this, that, that we are not the people who own the box in which God lives. God is bigger than us. And surely his wisdom and his being is far beyond us. And so when we come to the secret things of God, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 mentions, you need to understand there's great diversity among theologians about how it is we should identify these things from God. But I want to offer three categories of the secret things of God to help us form a biblical framework regarding our current pandemic. Category number one is what I would call caused by God. You might say this is God's divine will. You might even say it's God's sovereign will. Some theologians call this his will of decree. In other words, it's what he has decreed for all time to be. In category one, these are the things that God has ordained before the foundation of the world. They are established and they cannot be thwarted nor changed. It is what transpires and in what transpires comes directly from God's hand. Now let me briefly offer you three examples from scripture. First of all, in Genesis chapter 19, we see that God judges the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning down raining uh, or sulfur rain upon them in judgment. This is an act of the judgment of sin upon that city. And and the judgment of sin in Scripture is always an act and a timing of God's divine will. No one else judges sin but God. But it always reveals God's divine will because He is the one exercising His volition to bring about His divine purpose on earth. And so we know this, friends. Scripture teaches that God does act this way in the world, in history. The second example I would uh, present to you is found in the book of Exodus. 
We're familiar with this when Pharaoh in Egypt held the Israelite children captive. And God sent Moses in to call Pharaoh to release them. And Pharaoh said no over and over and over again. And so God sent ten plagues upon the Egyptian ruler Pharaoh. And that he might demonstrate his mighty power to Pharaoh. Now, some of them were natural plagues and some of them were supernatural, but all of them, we are told, came from a divine origin. They were caused by God in order to serve his purpose. That's important for us to understand how God has worked in this world, how God can work in this world, how God does work in this world. A third example I'll offer for category one is Romans 5, 6. Romans 5, 6 speaks of God's perfect timing, his kairos. That word simply means the perfection of time. And it refers to the most important act in all of the Bible. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It tells us that at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, the cross of Jesus is God judging sin once for all by the offering up of Jesus as a propitiation for it. These three examples help us understand this first category of God's divine will or those events that God causes in this world. So let's bring it back to our situation Can or will we ever know whether this pandemic was caused by God's divine will? No. No, we won't. We only know these things because the Bible reveals that God does work in this way. But friends, the divine will of God proclaims this. That God is working in the world to bring forth his sovereign plan of reconciliation of all things through Jesus Christ. Now I want you to hold on to that for just a moment because we're going to summarize all three of these in just a moment. But let's look at category two. Category two are those things that transpire in the world that are sent by God. That's how I distinguish this. I'll call it God's providential will. So category one, God's divine will. Category two, God's providential will. Now, in order to clarify, let me say this. In some sense, all of these categories fall into God's providence without question. But I am using God's providential will here to kind of offer a category instead of just the one subject itself. And the way that I would distinguish it is this. It is when God intentionally chooses to work through what is already an existing or a natural propensity or disposition or action of a person, a people, or even creation, the events of history, in order to accomplish His purposes. This is what I mean by sent by God. He may not have caused the event to transpire, but he used that event strategically to send it to accomplish his purpose. Now in category two, while God is active, he is never responsible as the cause of any sin or evil that is perpetrated. Scripture makes this very clear that man is always responsible for his sin and his sinful 
actions. Surely tension remains for many in the understanding of this uh, category. But it does not remain there for God. There is no tension. His actions are always holy and right just to bring good. Look at two scripture reference that will help us understand category two. And consider how it is that God used Pharaoh's responses to his plague. The book of Romans in the New Testament, in reflecting and explaining what transpired, tells us that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But that the actions of rejection and wickedness that came back to God from Pharaoh were Pharaoh's responsibilities. Paul goes on to instruct that God raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose. And so we see that God sent a man in Romans chapter 9 for the very purpose of rejecting him. How can this be, friends? How can this be? Paul offers this in explanation, that God is the potter, we are the clay. Some that he creates for noble purposes and some for ignoble purposes. He is the one who decides how they will be used. But all of them are used in accord with his divine nature and purpose. The second illustration or example I'll give you from Scripture is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And he is speaking of the prophet Isaiah, specifically in chapter 6. And John interprets God's commissioning of Isaiah's preaching for this very end in blinding eyes and hardening hearts to accomplish his purposes. And it causes us to ask the question... Can the gospel harden a heart? Can the gospel, the very good news that brings people into a relationship with God and the forgiveness of their sins, can the gospel harden a heart? And the simple biblical answer to that is yes, it absolutely can. And it does every time it is preached. You see, just as water either softens the soil or hardens it, so the gospel has the same effect on the heart of every hearer. Every time you hear the gospel and you fail to believe, your heart becomes a little more hard towards God. And this is what we see as the providential will of God, where God takes the natural events and occurrences and actions of people and he sends them to accomplish his will. This providential will of God reminds us that God remains active in the everyday affairs of his creation in order to bring about his glory and his sovereign plan. The third category is simply allowed by God or God's permissive will. Now here is where the greatest diversity of thinking among uh, scholars, among commentators and theologians ranges. But in this, God doesn't cause nor does he send, but rather he simply allows events in history to bring about his will. You see, by permissive will, I do not mean to infer that God is in any way passive, nor is he uninvolved, nor is he un 
caring. Rather, he allows the natural flow of events to come about to bring his glory. Two examples that I'll refer to here. In the book of Joshua chapter 7, it tells us that God allowed the Israelites to be defeated by Ai because of Achan's sin. God was angry because of their sin, so he didn't go to war with them. And when they attacked Ai, God allowed them to be defeated by the enemy. This is the same thing that we see happen in the life of Samson. Samson beckoned against God's grace in his own life until one day he rose to destroy the Philistines and the spirit was not with him and he was overcome. This gives us great insight to Romans chapter 1 verse 18 when it tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed against all the unrighteousness of man. It is, if you will, the natural events of history and of humanity bearing themselves out in the full brokenness of sin without the intervention of God whatsoever. You see, God allows the natural course of events to accomplish his will and to glorify him through both judgment and redemption. We see this also in the life of Joseph. His brothers kidnap him and sell him into slavery. And then many, many, many years later, when he has risen to be the second most powerful man in Egypt, and that, we're told, was by God's hand nonetheless, That would refer to category one. We're told in Genesis 50, 20 that Joseph understood the events that transpired in this way. What some meant for evil, God has brought good. Genesis 50, 20 demonstrates what Roman 28 declares. That though we do not, because we cannot understand all that transpires in history... We can always rest in God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to bring good to his children. Why does God do that? Listen to me friends. I I want you to feel the weight of glory in this next statement. Because God is a God who turns evil into good. God is a God who takes the smallest bit of pain and suffering. And turns it into a boatload of glory and good. For his people. These three categories provide a framework for us to consider our pandemic. And in all three of them, God is neither dormant, He's not passive, He's not unconcerned and uncaring, He's not blind, nor is He ever out of control. And though we may be unsure of all that God is doing at any given moment and in the midst of or because of any given season, this we can be certain of. That he is working out his will for his glory at all times and in all situations. Now let me offer a word of strong caution that I believe is appropriate here. A word of strong caution that we don't project our situation on some biblical situation so that we believe we can claim certain things from God and try to ordain his work for him. Millard Erickson A theologian and and, um, commentator states this. If God sends sunshine and rain on the unjust and the just alike, then in a world where sin has brought ravages of natural uh, uh, and disease, misfortune may fall on the just uh, 
just as it does on the unjust. You see, friends, today it is sufficient for us to know that God can. Today it is sufficient for us to know that God does. And even of our current situation, it is sufficient for us to know that He may be, but it is never right for us to declare with certainty that He is using some crisis or calamity for judgment. We cannot say this with certainty, and we are more likely to speak incorrectly. And so now that we've covered the first question, I want us to move to the second question. So if this is a way for us to think about what is transpiring today, one of these three categories of God fulfilling his will in the world, what should then we think or what should we do? Well, first we need to remember at all times that Jesus is calling us to live by faith so we can rest and walk in him as our covenant keeper. And I want to offer to you today, based on Deuteronomy 29, 29, that Jesus is the one who makes sense of the madness. And we can see that by three responses of faith in this verse. First of all, it tells us the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And this is not inconsequential for us, friends. Not everything is for us. Hear me, God conceals as well as reveals both for his glory. There are things God does not tell us and reveal to us that are for his glory. It is right for us to seek the Lord and to seek his will. It is wrong for us to demand more of him than he has willed to reveal for us. The secret things are God's. It, in fact, is that simple. Why? Because he is God. Because he is God. And to demand of more from him does not demonstrate a relationship of faith, but a demand of evidence and proof of who he is. What we must do is to declare that God is worthy to be trusted. He is worthy of our praise. Listen to me, friends. What we do know about God is that He is worthy of all praise, of all honor, and of all worship, even when and especially in the times of unknownness and uncertainty. He is worthy. Another theologian, Michael Horden, states this for our help. Where God has not revealed his secret plans in the scripture, we have no way of discerning them. In fact, often God's providence in the world is not apparent to us except by the clear promises in his word. So we are directed to seek out God's will only in that which he has revealed in the law and the gospel. Christians have God's covenant promise, friends. And it's found in Romans 8, 28. He works all things for our good. This is a promise of his covenant with us. It is exactly what Deuteronomy appeals to here when it says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. 
The covenant promise is what Deuteronomy is pointing to here. Lord is spelled in all capital letters. And in the Old Testament, anytime Lord is spelled with all capital letters, it is a reference to the covenant name of God, the name of Yahweh. That Moses is pointing the people of God to the covenant promises of God and saying he is faithful to his promises. You don't have to see what tomorrow holds. You just keep your eyes on the one who is holding you in tomorrow. And that's the Lord our God. That's Jesus Christ. The first response of faith for us in this time is this. That Jesus makes sense of the madness and the secret things when we trust in him because he is our covenant keeper. He is sufficient. He is enough for us. Now Deuteronomy 29, 29 goes on to say, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. You see, some things do belong only to God, but, Some things he has given to us and to our children. You see, the gospel that saves has been entrusted to us in order to pass on. And first and foremost, to our children, for their children and their children. Is it interesting, not to you, it is to me. How different it is that you receive a gift when you know it is only yours for a time. But there will come a time when you will hand it on to others. I remember when Kristen's grandfather, uh, a year or so before he passed away, he gave me a very special family heirloom. And he said, Lane, I want you to have this. But more than just to have it, I want you to give it to your son And have him give it to his son. You see, I keep that today as a gift of our family heritage. But I only keep it for a time because I will pass it on as well. And what Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us is that the secret things belong to the Lord. But the Lord has given to us the things that are for us and for our children. And the gospel is what he is speaking of here. And it causes us to ask, what are we doing with the gospel in the limited time with which it has been entrusted to us to share it? Listen, friends, here's the second response of faith that we must be beckoning upon in this pandemic season. Jesus makes sense of the madness as we live in and pass on our faith in him. Are you capturing every day for this? Are you talking about Jesus to your children when you sit at the breakfast table or the dinner table? When you get in the car to go wherever it is that you might go in this time? When you go to the backyard? When you go wherever it is that you find yourself going? This was the gospel has been given to us and to our children. And we should be quick. To share it. Now, Deuteronomy 29, 29 finishes that we may do all the words of this law. God has revealed all we need to know so we can do all he has purposed for us to do. You let that sink in for a moment. God has revealed all that we need to know to do all that he has purposed for us. Friends, this is not inconsequential, it's life altering. Knowing God is a relationship of faith. 
It's not him trusting to see what we can do for him, but it is us trusting him to watch what he wants to do in us. It is a relationship of obedience by faith. This is the aim of God's revelation. It is the aim of our faith. Obedience. Obedience. And it causes me to ask us today, are you walking in what you do know about God in the midst of all of this madness of what you don't know about the situation in which you're living? Are you holding to the things of Him that you know to be true? You see, at the end of this pandemic, you may not know any more about the what, the why, the how, or the when. But as you trust to obey Jesus in all that you do know, there is one thing you can be guaranteed that you will know, that Jesus is worthy. Here's the third response of faith for us today. Jesus makes sense of the madness as we walk by faith in obedience to him. Friends, Jesus calls us to live by faith so we can rest and walk in him as our covenant keeper. Now, I need to close, but let me say just a few last words. When a big problem or a big crisis arises that demands a bigger faith than what you have, you can know this, friends. God is always inviting you into a deeper relationship with Him, a deeper faith, a deeper understanding, a deeper walk. And I would say this to all of us. He's inviting all of us into that right now. Surely, He's calling us to a deeper faith. Might I just encourage you today, I exhort you, Christians, don't give up. Don't give up. Jesus is still worthy. He's worthy of all of your faith. He's worthy of all of your honor. He's worthy of all your worship. He is worthy of all your life. Not knowing every detail of the times changes nothing about what we do know of the one who is Lord of all, Jesus Christ. One last passage of scripture. And I'll conclude. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Jesus, help us today to look to you every moment, every day, at all times, for all things. In your name we pray. Amen.